Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 102. This week, we talk with Chris Anderson about dynamic computing with Azure Functions, interview questions to ask a potential tech employer, and finally, CSS in your JavaScript. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics, providing tools and solutions to accelerate design, development, insights, and collaboration for any organization. This week we have Chris Anderson. He's program manager on the Azure App Service team working on Azure Web Jobs and Azure Functions. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Can you explain your ghetto microphone? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm I'm in this uh, phone room here at Microsoft, and I just remembered that my laptop that I was going to record on doesn't have a microphone jack. So I've got this kind of daisy chain <laughs> setup here where I'm listening through my headphones, but I'm connecting in through the office phone, and that's what this thing is right here. So it, it's actually a good way to do it. It looks kind of silly, but that it's it's actually you know it's it's the right distance from my face all the time. Yep. It's you know yep. it'll work. It's actually a better setup than most of our guests. So. <laughs> Congratulations. So, Carl, what's going on on your side? So, uh, we got some awesome news. Uh, Once again, we're a media sponsor for that conference that takes place in the Wisconsin Dells the uh, first week of August. So, if you're just looking for just an awesome polyglot conference to go to that's national level, but you don't want to travel really far for, um, that conference is awesome. We've both been there several times. Great place to take your family to. They do so much for family, so much for bacon. Um, I just can't recommend it enough. So uh, for the second year in a row, uh, we're going to be recording there. And uh, so if you want to say hi or if you got something cool that you want to share with everybody else, stop on over. We'll get you on. And unfortunately, I probably won't be making it this year. Uh, <laughs> that's a shame. Yeah. So I'd, So that's go ahead. I was going to say, you can go first because I got I was going to transition. Okay, because, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I mentioned on the show, but I'm moving out to uh, to Redmond. So everything is going to get crazy, crazy complicated. So I don't even, I don't know what's going to be going on in August. And I want to make sure that we still dedicate the the time that it takes to, to do this show. So um, I probably won't make it. I don't know if I'm going to do some kind of remote thing. But um, in any case, Carl will be there on site getting some great interviews. Welcome to Redmond. You can join us over here. Thank you. <laughs> yep. And then we could actually be in the same room and then I could actually let you use a decent microphone. <laughs> <laughs> this is working, man. This is working. It's working. It's working. Yeah, I guess, it. you know, if it works, don't laugh at it. So the, the next item I, I have put in the notes is Jason the Trader. Yep. Uh, Jason was recently on a, a another uh, podcast. <laughs> so that's what this is about. So I thought I'd give you a, just a a second here to just, you know, say what you were talking about. Yeah. So if you wanted to hear more, you know, I try not to get like too meta on this podcast, but you know, if you want to hear about like why we started the podcast, a lot of what goes into it, you know, how we, how we keep increasing our numbers, those types of things, uh, you can check that out. We'll have a link in the, in the show notes. Cause I, I can't remember the exact name of the podcast. It's like my casts or something. Um, you know, they, they do like a couple different things and they, they started up a, a podcast. So you can, you can hear me over there. Uh, the interviewer was kind of interesting. He had some off the wall questions that, that threw me off a little bit, like, you know, uh, <laughs> partway through the interview and, and we won't do this to you, Chris. He's just like, 
okay, you're now on an island off the coast of Japan and you have a broken Nintendo. How do you fix it? <laughs> and that totally threw me off because uh, he didn't tell me in advance that he was going to do that. So um, that was a little bit challenging. But yeah, if you want to hear that kind of uh, meta behind the scenes information, uh, you can go check that out and we'll have a link in the show notes. Awesome. And now it's time for the Infragistics Ultimate Winner of the Week. Uh, this week, we got some email from Eric Dunaway. Uh, he was asking if we we're going to be putting our show on the Google Play podcast when it launches, mm-hmm. because that is actually all in the news right now. And he also said he, that he just started listening to the show. He loves it and asks for us to please continue the great work. So the good news is, is we actually applied for it like immediately. Yeah, Carl was many, on the ball with ago. this one. Like he, he sent me a message, like immediately he said, Hey, we need to set this up. And I think we set it up like the first day. So we're, we're good to go yeah. whenever this launches. So we're already in there, but there, there are some like interesting things about mm-hmm. it because they reserve the right to, if we like take down a show that they'll keep distributing it only to people who have already downloaded it before. Okay. So there's, there's some interesting things. Kind of like how apps uh, work, right? Kind of. Yeah. Uh, there's some interesting things in their terms of services. So I'm just going to put a link to the, the, their terms of service for this podcast store, just so people can just realize that, Hey, this is definitely a Google way of doing things. <laughs> yeah. People are flipping out over it. I'm, I don't know. I don't have time to flip out over it. So <laughs> yeah. We're pretty laid back. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know what all's in there. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, so we'll be in there. (laughs) That's what they're counting on. (laughs) Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else on that? No, onto the news, I think. Uh, sounds good. So let's see here. What do we, we got, we got lots of good news stories this week. So postmortem for Google, Google's compute engines, global outage on April 11th. So I didn't, I didn't read this one. So what actually happened, Carl? So there was like uh, somewhere between a 15 and a 30 minute period where Google's entire cloud offering, every single service was down, <laughs> which is, is pretty yeah. big. And one of the other interesting side effects, I think from it is none of Google services were affected whatsoever, which kind of shows you that n- uh, Google does not write its not own using products their own stuff. On, on their own cloud. So, I mean, it, it was also a chicken and egg thing. Their services were generally around before their cloud services. So, I mean, you got to ah, be a little bit fair on that. Excuse. So, I, But they also haven't moved any of them to. Yeah, them. Chris probably has more information than me, but I know that within Microsoft, everybody is really pushed hard to, you know, we. it's kind of like the, the model, like test what you use, you use what you test, you know, as sort of as the rule for testing. Uh, but we, we sort of use the same type of motto for um, using Azure. It's like, you need to be using Azure. Like you shouldn't be buying your own hardware. You shouldn't be building your own infrastructure, you know, cause they, there's so many lessons baked into this. And even this, I mean, cloud services have gone down. Everybody goes down um, at some point. That's just kind of the way it goes. Um, everybody's getting better at it. So I think people are getting better and better at minimizing it and, and reducing any kind of infrastructure that is common, you know, across regions and things like that. There's been a lot of lessons there. So all of these services continue to get better, but you know, I, I, I think this is, this is probably a whole bunch of people are probably going to, you know, like yell at the podcast whenever, whenever I say <laughs> this, cause I'm, to, I, I, it's going to sound like I'm totally spinning this and, and I will admit that I am, <laughs> but the way that I see it and, and, and I'm, I'm totally drinking the Kool-Aid and everything. So I'm just giving you all of those disclaimers. 
But the way I see it, like every time there's an outage in one of these cloud providers, it is a lesson for everybody and everybody fixes that and we move on and we get better from that. The problem is if you're, if you're running your own infrastructure, you aren't necessarily, I mean, you're, you're getting like a different set of lessons, but you could be like five years in the past. I mean, you're going to make silly mistakes that like Microsoft, Google, Amazon have already made and already fixed and already moved on from. So it's like, by building on their infrastructure, you're, you're really on like the latest set of lessons and, and the, the latest and greatest understanding of how you actually operate these things at scale. So again, that's my totally, you know, uh, is spinny Kool-Aid drinking, I mean that, uh, you know, philosophy. That's, this, that's the right brand of Kool-Aid right there. I mean, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, it's just, that's something that I like always hit on when I talk to customers for a while, I was doing uh, compliance work over in SQL and I'd always get you oh, know, okay. questions from customers. Like, are you compliant? Are you selling our data? Those kinds of things. I'm like, yeah. we, you know, work day in, day out, learn from countless customer issues to solve these problems mm-hmm. so that you don't have to. That's the whole value exactly. of using the cloud is the problem solved once for thousands upon thousands of customers. Yeah, exactly. And people, you know, I've mentioned this before and again, it's more Kool-Aid drinking, but, you know, people people always think that their local infrastructure has zero downtime, but that's not true. I mean, to, to actually compare things. Um, you know, you have to do an apples to apples comparison, which is, you know, you actually do have downtime. Um, this other solution will also have downtime. So let's, let's compare them on, on kind of an equal footing. And this was, you know, a few minutes and this could be devastating for somebody. So I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that, but, um, you know, whatever, whatever happened here, you know, I didn't read all the details. Um, you know, I would say there's a 99.999% chance like Google won't be hit by the same issue again. Like they'll learn from it and they'll improve. I mean, it was really interesting that the Google actually, you know, didn't go down. So they are running on the separate services, but my guess is yeah, using, that's kind of shameful. I think they're using the same stuff underneath the covers. I think that's something where, you know, we're a little bit different in the sense that all of our, even our Azure services themselves are built on top of other Azure services. So like right. when storage goes down, you know, everyone's having a very bad time around here, but we work and that means the storage is, you know, all that much better here because everyone well, suffers. And, and, and to kind of prove that point, I mean, this is, this is sort of a, a negative thing, but I mean, like the, the Azure status dashboard, like there was a, there was a big outage and like it went down at the same time that, that Azure went down. Cause we, we are in such a habit of building on our own stuff, you know, eating our own dog food that, that, you know, that was, that was just kind of silly and now it's separated. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I think it's kind of a testament to that. So, it, the, so we, we want to run into those issues before customers do for sure. Yeah. The mindset's definitely there right now. Yeah. Anyway, I think we uh, beat that one to death. Uh, let's see here. React native on the user or universal windows platform, UWP platform. Yeah. There's a uh, react is getting a, a, just a huge upswing of people that are using it for their oh, apps yeah, killing it right now. and, yeah, it's it's really killing it. And now you can use React to write a UWP app. So you can make a mobile app or you can make a desktop app using React, using HTML and JavaScript. And it even uses like the native uh, JavaScript rendering engine on Windows as well. So you get that performance from Windows, but you can still just not worry about okay. it. So, I mean, your code so, would be, I guess your, your code... It isn't necessarily be the same across all those, right? So you would, I mean, you're going to, you're going to use the react native control, but it's, and it's going to map to a, to whatever that native control is. So you might still have to do some platform customizations. Yeah. And, and I think where this, where react differs from a lot of other projects, like a lot of them are like, we want you to write this once and it'll work everywhere. Whereas react is like, we're going to write this in the way that makes sense for the platform. Yeah. 
And, you know, it's a little bit different. And, uh, but at the same time, you can make it a lot more cohesive, uh, feeling for what you want for your brand and what, uh, matches the platform yeah. that you're on. Cause you want to reuse the skills that you have, but you don't want to necessarily ignore platform differences. So that's, that's kind of the compromise yeah. I made. Okay. And, and I think it's a way to bring people that are, are, are used to doing these more modern JavaScript HTML apps, giving them another way to do that on the windows platform okay. in a way that they're used to. So I think that's pretty powerful as well. Okay. So this next one we can probably do pretty quick, but the, I didn't see, you know, I was, I was on vacation for the past week, uh, down in Clearwater, Florida, but Amazon's Kindle Oasis is the funkiest e-reader it's ever made. <laughs> what is the deal with this thing? It's got like a weird thing on the side. It looks like it's super thin, right? Yeah. It's less than half the weight of the, the next lightest Kindle ever. Wow. So it's very yeah. light, uh, but it has the same size screen. It has, it has an interesting, like you said, bump along one edge of it. Yeah. Um, but they said it's it's easy enough for you to flip. So if you're left-handed or right-handed, you can use it to you know help grip mm-hmm. it. Uh, to me, this is just kind of a, a really weird. Uh, you know, it's the most expensive Kindle in the lineup right now. I forgot if it's two hundred nine hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's three hundred dollars. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. Um, it has you know many many months of battery. Even more if you have the battery cover. Uh, it's got more LEDs in there. Um, you know, I, I, I just have the paper white and I'm super happy yeah. with it and it's not even the most current mm-hmm. one. Yeah. So for me, I, I don't know exactly who this is for. Uh, you know, maybe just the most. Yeah. I got mine you know, for like, I got, yeah, the paper white, I got it for like 30 or 40 bucks. Um, yeah. that's all I need. So my, I don't, I can't imagine spending two ninety on this. My wife was actually looking at that because she really prefers paper books and she kind of liked the idea that it's got that little thick edge on the mm-hmm. side to kind of hold on to it more firmly. Okay. Whereas the other one, you kind of like cradle this one. You can actually like grip onto the side. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's one they might yeah, sell. So, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but I, I think, you know, as a, something that's sold in a digital way, to me, that still seems like something you got to get your hands on to like really understand if this is something mm-hmm. for you, especially when you're going to drop down almost $300. Yep. So they have the okay, Amazon stores now. Yeah. Let's move on. Interview questions ask. I just lost the window to ask a potential tech employer. So what are they, Carl? Well, so first things first, you know, I think a lot of people fail to realize, you know, when they're in an interview process, um, they really concentrate on being prepared for being interviewed. Yeah, answering questions. They, yeah. Uh, a lot of people, you know, f- fail to realize that, hey, I, I need to make sure that this company, this team, um, you know, this department is a right fit for me as yep. well. Um, and to ask the kind of questions that aren't just technical questions, but also the social questions that really help you get an idea whether you'd fit in there or you'd even like working with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you don't ask these kind of things, you might uh, accept it just because you passed. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of times we're super excited to just be, have a chance to interview at a really cool place. Um, so not only is this a list of questions to ask, but the way he's done it, um, he uh, uh, listed these in YML, which he can, he has a converter <laughs> for JSON that aside, I mean, I mean, he has a list of questions and, you know, what kinds of answers you should be expecting if you don't know the answer to those questions. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting take on it too. 
And just to be ever so complete, I see that in 2008, you wrote a very similar blog post. Yes, I did. Yeah, you, you sent this to me and I'm like, is this my post? And then, uh, <laughs> and then yeah, I, I went back. I just did a quick uh, Google search and I found, uh, or Bing search, um, and I found, uh, uh, I found my blog post. Yeah, so it was uh, eight years ago now, which is a long time ago. I don't even know if mine make any sense. Did you? I don't remember what they it, were. <laughs> so, so, I mean, yours makes sense, but they're very, very focused in on, you know, being a software oh, yeah. engineer. You know, some of the stuff that's in these other questions are even like, how many hours did you work last week? You know, is this a team that, you know, 40 to 45 hours is normal or am I going to be doing 60 hours? Some every of week? those you got to be a little careful with what I would do. Mm-hmm. We actually had, it was a coworker of ours, Carl. He, uh, and I, I actually respected this quite a bit. He said, can I come in and mentor for a day? Like, I want to see what a day looks like. And we were like, sure, that's fine. And he actually came in and he sat with each of the devs. Um, and then it was nice too. Whenever he started, like he didn't have to get introduced everybody cause he already knew everybody, but he felt comfortable about it then. And I actually thought that was really cool because he really wanted to know what he was getting into and he obviously enjoyed it. And then, and then we ended up working with him. Uh, but that was kind of cool. And then you don't have to ask those questions. Cause I, I th- I'd be careful with the one, how many hours a week do you work? Especially if you ask yeah. everybody, they're like, he was really concerned yeah. with whether or not we had to work more than eight hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, to, uh, you know, in a very similar thing, uh, when uh, before I took the uh, current job that I'm at, you know, I wasn't able to actually go on site um, at their location because it is a good distance from my house. They actually came out by me to do the interview. And, you know, once I was comfortable with, you know, you know, what they had to say about the job and, and whatever, I asked, hey, can I spend a couple hours? Can I come down to you now? And so, you know, I did a very similar thing, yeah. you know, as, cool. as what you were just saying. Yeah. Um, let's get the next one. There's one that I want to get to though. Finally, CSS and JavaScript script meet CSS X. So this is a way I just kind of skimmed through this, uh, cause you were the one that put this in here, Carl, but it's a way of using JavaScript to generate your styles. And this reminds me of, I mean, th- this has been. This is this has manifested itself in a lot of different ways uh, previously. I remember like writing JavaScript from .NET, and you know, writing one language from another always uh, always seemed like kind of the holy grail, and then eventually it just seems like a terrible idea. So I'm I'm kind of curious if this is a good idea or not. Holy cow, this is long. I mean, this is kind of an evolution <laughs> yeah, of the, it's like a novel. <laughs> it's like an evolution of like the JSX, you know, making it easier to write HTML inside of JavaScript, and this is kind yeah. of the the play on that. Okay, which that one is, I mean, a lot of people would say is valid, mm-hmm. and I, and I guess I wouldn't so, necessarily disagree with it. So you know, one of the things that you know, my kind of takeaway on this is when you look at how React does things, yeah. you know, going back to that. Um, you know, a lot of times that mixes, I mean, you don't, you don't code in there like you would like an MVVM model or an MVC model. You really mix a lot of those things. And I think in an effort to, you know, when you want to provide a widget and you want to provide a widget, like an all in one package, having a technology like this to write it in makes that a lot easier because you can write your, your JavaScript, your CSS, your HTML kind of all in one. And then when you include that in, 
you just get whatever that functionality is with the least amount of effort. Yeah. I remember when CSS, you know, first, I don't want to say it came out, but you know, I guess around that era, everybody's like, Oh yeah, you know, your style is totally separated from everything else. And everybody was all excited. <laughs> and it's just, it's funny how this stuff like sort of goes back and forth. And I mean, it's great. I mean, just trying every combination of everything. So I'm going to, I'm going to reserve judgment on this. This could be really scary, but this could be really cool. And like you said, Carl, especially like if you, you know, if you're building your own thing for the most part, like you, you really don't necessarily have to separate all that stuff out. You know, you don't always have to do things in the name of good design, uh, if it's just for your own company. Um, so this, you know, this might be a huge time saver and honestly, like I'm, I'm pretty pragmatic. So I'd rather save time than, than, than be correct and just tell everybody, Oh, we totally did this correctly, even though, you know, it <laughs> takes us twice the amount of time. So very cool. But we'll have that in the show notes so people can check out what that looks like. Okay, finally. So let's get to our, our guest because today we want to talk about Azure Functions, which when this was announced, I was so, so, so excited um, because just for a little bit of background, when Amazon launched uh, Lambda, for example, uh, I actually talked about it on the on the show. We don't talk about AWS too much, but I was like, this is so cool. Like, I just, I have to talk about it. And I wanted to kind of give them a little bit of credit for, for what they were doing there because I... That was when, when cloud computing first came out, this is like what I had in my head was I just have some code. I just want you to run it, just make it. So just do it. So when I saw this, I was super excited because I want to build some really cool stuff on this. Uh, so before we actually get to the actual technology, why don't we talk about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for Microsoft. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, what my current job is at Microsoft is program manager for functions and web jobs and a couple of other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically means uh, I go and talk to customers. I understand how things want to be used. I think through the user experience. And then I translate that into kind of requirements. And we don't even really do requirements here, but I go and file an issue on GitHub for, hey, we should have this feature. And we I work with yeah. the devs to kind of and walk through why. that experience. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's really what my job is, is basically just trying to think through problems, work with customers when they have problems, and try to come up with a solution with the engineers. Okay. All right. So I, I know not everybody has had a chance to see the build announcement. So can you tell us what Azure Functions sure. is? Um, so in you know the simplest form, Azure Functions is a way of writing some code, very simple function, having that be able to react to events, whether they be HTTP, timer-based, or reacting to another service out there like a Azure queues, or we have like GitHub webhooks and things like that. Um, and then not having to necessarily worry about the compute. We actually have two different flavors of running this. You can actually reserve VMs to run this on, or run this in our dynamic tier where you pay per execution. So it really, it frees you up from having to deploy a whole application stack. You can just write function after function after function, not worrying about the scale that comes with that. Okay. And right now I think, do I have to do all of this through the portal today or can I, can I somehow write the code in like VS code or do I have to paste that into the portal? What do the mechanics look like? So the, um, the cool thing about this is this is all built on existing technologies. This is built on top of Azure app service, which has continuous integration and all that kind of stuff baked in. Um, I will say that our tooling is just not great today. It's something that we're going to work on going on to GA, but you can actually, if you we have a great portal experience, so it's really easy to write some code in the portal. If you write some code in the portal, you can go up to what we call your SCM site and actually download all of your functions locally. And if you um, open that up in Visual Studio as an existing website, you can actually publish that back up to your function app and it's the exact same uh, code. Oh, so it's okay. it's essentially all these functions live in folders on your function app 
And okay. that then gets deployed up to www.root on our on your function app. And so you can treat it okay. just like you would treat a website when you're deploying code there. Okay. And I want to make sure too that 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 everybody understands exactly what we're talking about here before we get too deep into this. <laughs> and the 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 exciting part for me, I'll I'll tell you kind of my use case and then we can talk about some of the other ones cuz you mentioned like so, you know some kind of trigger happens and then something happens and then there's like an output. So we really <laughs> have like input processing and output. Mm-hmm. Um for me like the 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 case that I always think of in my mind is that the input is an HTTP request. You know, so some kind of call comes in that says, you know, hey, please look up this record for me or I don't know, just, you know, calculate, add these two numbers together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I, I write some, I do a lot of Node.js, but, you know, I do C Sharp and whatever, but let's say I'm in, you know, Node.js, I'm doing JavaScript. I say, okay, this request comes in, I'm, I get two numbers as parameters, I'm going to add those things together and then I'm going to return that as my HTTP response. So I always think of that as kind of my canonical example. So I, I'm just handling an HTTP request. But again, without a server, I'm not like, I'm not worried about like how this works. I'm just saying, here's my code, please run it. And then you mentioned there's different um, inputs and outputs. So um, what, are, what are some of the other ones? I know you can do like on a schedule. So I could yeah. like every hour I could do something, for example. So the uh, the way that this works is this is actually based off of the WebJobs SDK. So, you know, WebJobs SDK has existed for a couple of years. It's one of our yeah. most successful features, but it was still kind of hindered because it was hiding behind web applications. And so we, it wasn't as accessible as we wanted it to. As, as powerful as the platform was, it wasn't accessible. And so WebJobs had this concept where you had a trigger and you can also have additional data being input and additional data being output. So you can actually, you know, we have triggers for HTTP, timer, queues, uh, we have an event hub timer, a blob timer, you know, or trigger, triggers. Um, yep. But then we have additional inputs. So you can, re- for instance, on an HTTP request coming in, fetch some data from table storage or from DocDB, which might contain like your user's information. Yep. And that way you don't have to actually make database calls inside of user code. Those are happening as part of the framework and you can just worry about the business logic you have to write. Yeah. And then, like you said, you could do it from a queue or event hub. So if, if a record comes in from event hubs, I can, I can get node. Basically my code will sort of spawn up whenever that happens and then it can process it. And then it just sort of disappears into the ether again. Yeah. I mean the, the great, the great way of thinking about this is an end end sample. So for instance, I have an IOT hub, I have an IOT device in my car, I'm driving around and, um, I need to get a push notification. Maybe I'm going the wrong way or there's traffic coming up. You can actually have, you know, IOT hub using a stream analytics, you know, kind of analysis job on there, output a queue record or something like that, that the function picks up and then sends a push notification down to your device. And the great thing is that if you only send one push notification a day, you only pay for that one execution on the dynamic tier, which means you don't need to worry about scaling that up. If you have a million executions, you don't have to worry about scaling that out, right? Let's say that one day out of 365 days in a year, traffic is bad. It'll still scale out and handle those notifications for you. And you don't have to worry about scaling it back down afterwards. So you can sleep at night and you're you're happy. I love it. I love it. Because, you know, it's funny. People talk about cloud all the time and they always talk about scale up. And I always bring the conversation back to scale down Mm -hmm. because without scale down that you don't get cost savings. Yeah. (laughs) So I love that. I love that, especially for like me, like I don't, I don't run some big company. I work for a big company. So it's like, if I'm going to build, you know, I have some just idea on the side and I want to implement it. If, if, if I'm not successful, I don't want to have to pay anything. Yeah. If nobody goes to my website, if, if there's never any traffic and I built a traffic app for, you know, I don't know, like where I live here, (laughs) um, you know, if I built a traffic app for that, I'm never going to send any notifications. Like, it's nice that I don't have to pay anything, but like you said, then I can, you know, I can just pay for, you know, and just handle that, that, 
that upscaling. That's awesome. And, and to that point, you know, for, for simple things, for individual developers, we're actually giving away, I think, 400,000 gigabit seconds of compute away yeah. as a, for every month. <laughs> If you're using yeah. this, so it's really, really approachable. If you just have one simple job you want working with functions, you won't pay yeah. a dime for it. Probably, if you have something that's running under heavy load, you will. But you know, you're getting a good value out of it for that. You know, I, I just thought of this, and and I I apologize for taking us on a tangent. I do this every episode, but <laughs> I was just thinking of like, um, you know, my I, there's there's this trend towards static websites. So like, my personal blog is a static website. Uh, the msdevshow.com is actually a static site. It's all built and then it, it's completely static HTML. Like mm-hmm. There's nothing to hack. There's no database. There's, there's nothing. It's literally just HTML pages. So what's cool is like Carl and I, every once in a while, we're like, Oh, we should add this to the site. And we're like, Oh, well, it's a static site. Like we can't do that. Um, so this actually is, is kind of neat because if we did want to have like just a function to go like do something, I don't know, some button that does something crazy on the site that go, you know, gets some dynamic content. Mm-hmm. Um, this actually would be an awesome way to do that yeah. because we can just have that single API call. It, we have a, we have a core setting. So it's like inside the portal. So it's really easy to set up cores with just pasting your URL into there. And then mm-hmm. boom, you could have this thing running in five minutes. So let's say you want to add like a high score API to a game that you have. That's just a static, you know, HTML five uh, game. Yeah. This is one way of doing it in very, very quick amount of time. Infragistics, Ultimate UX and UI tools, and Enterprise Mobility Solutions, SharePlus and Report Plus, enable high-performance apps on any device, faster data insights, simplified collaboration, and market-leading security, all backed by comprehensive support. With Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Development Toolkit, you can ensure mission-critical applications delivering a superior user experience on the desktop, web, and native device environments for iOS and Android. With the latest BI tools, wow your users with dashboards providing the data insights that they need when and where they need it, all at a low total cost of ownership. Try it today. Download a free trial at infragistics.com and follow them for the latest updates in UX and UI development, reporting, and collaboration at Infragistics on Twitter. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you will get a free copy of Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Toolset. So you mentioned that you know for these, we could just go to the portal and type in our code. So what kind of language language support do we have at this time? Um, so we we support a lot of languages, but um, when I say support, there's varying degrees of that. Our top tier support is Node.js and C Sharp. Um, you know, Node.js, JavaScript is kind of like the English of programming languages these days. Everyone can write a little bit of it at least. But, you know, C Sharp is kind of the bread and butter of Microsoft. Um, and then other languages like Python and PHP, PowerShell, Batch, um, these are in what we call the scripting tier. You know, they're kind of left in the experimental category right now. And essentially, we just invoke them via command line. So we call like FSI, EXE, and then we call your F Sharp code which isn't ideal, but you know you can actually start writing some code there. And we're going to be promoting those experiences into kind of a more first-class experience like the C-sharp and JavaScript. So actually, um, last night, um, Dom Syme from the F-sharp team actually pushed a um, pull request or sent a pull request to us to add F-sharp support first-class to our runtime. Okay. So we're actually working on getting F-sharp support. That'll probably happen this month or next month. Well, that's great that there's like support in there today, though. I mean, I'd rather like get started today and then have you make it better again. Exactly. You know, on our on our discussion earlier, like 
that's the nice thing about the cloud. Like things will just keep getting better and better for me. And this is all, this is all open source too. So you can actually go yeah. and follow us along as we're adding support for these oh, various languages. Awesome. And if you're really passionate about adding like fourth support to functions, you just go ahead yeah. and send us a pull request and we'll probably look at you like you're crazy, but we'll think about it. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so you mentioned before that I could, I could like pull these functions out, I could edit them and then I can push them back up. Is there any kind of SDK or rest endpoint or, or is that really the only way I can interact with these and, and as well through the portal? I mean, so there's a variety of ways to do this thing because it's built on this existing platform. So there's just all these existing doors and windows we have to the thing. Okay. What we don't have is a really good, you know, SDK, CLI thing for pulling the thing down locally, editing it, and then pushing it back up. It's yeah. mostly go and take existing tools and kind of string them together to get that going. So that's our a huge priority for us to go get that rolling. But we have we have a service that runs on the back end of all app service apps called Kudu. And Kudu has a variety of APIs for sending a zip file up or you using the virtual file system to actually access the files on disk. So it's we've already got people who've written PowerShell scripts for deploying functions up. You can use an ARM template to actually provision a function app and storage account and all that kind of stuff and then push a function to it. Yeah, Kudu supports like GitHub and it supports its own repository. So can I use those or not? Yeah, so you can actually use GitHub. And if you go to the Azure Functions portal today uh-huh. and you click on Function App Settings, there's a continue yeah. integration. There continuous integration button. You can click on that, and we have support for you know GitHub, Bitbucket. We have Dropbox and OneDrive support. You can use an external Git library. That is awesome. Okay, okay. I didn't even think you had that. So this is this is all like legitimate news to me. So that's I'm really excited about that. Yeah, now. no. I mean the, the the great thing about this is by building on that existing platform, we have all these things that are working at least halfway, and yeah. they, they just need polish. And polish is what we have time until GA to do. Yeah. Very cool. So you know, we talked about earlier about scaling. So h- how does scaling happen with Azure Functions? Is it all kind of implicit behind the scenes, or is there something that I have to do uh, with like some of the other Azure options? So um, if you're using the dynamic tier, uh, that's exactly what we're trying to do, is that you don't have to do anything. Essentially, you just choose your trigger, and we have intelligence inside of our scale controller to basically know that based off this trigger – we can go and look for the scale signals for that particular trigger. So for instance, for queues, we can look at the queue length. For Event Hub, we can actually go and look at the throughput through the Event Hub. For HTTP, we can actually look at the number of requests that you're getting per second. So it's essentially for each trigger that we have coming in, we've gone off and done this implementation where we know how to scale that trigger very well. If you're using the dedicated tier, um, that's where it's manual, you essentially choose the number of VMs that you want. And you can use what App Service has called it's an auto scale feature to still set the kind of scaling up and down VMs approach, but you still have to kind of identify which signals you want to scale off of. We haven't made available to the dedicated tier yet our scale controller. So why when would I want to dedicate instances to this? So for instance, if you have what you would call a consistent load for your functions and you know that you're always going to be taking about a thousand requests per second from Event Hub and you never expect that to spike or go down, then it's cheaper to just buy the VM because there's a premium that comes with having the kind of on-demand compute. And there's a certain point, certain little corners where it makes sense to actually buy that. There's other reasons, for instance, some enterprises just aren't comfortable with the serverless model yet. So you can start coding against the serverless model and then maybe switch later. Maybe you can trust that you just want to buy your VMs and you can trust that you have consistent pricing going on there. Um, so there's a number of reasons. And it just made it was easy, essentially, for us to just make it dedicated as available as an option because it was already built on App Service and App Service already had dedicated VMs available. 
Yeah. I guess some companies could get, would get worried. Like we don't want some mystery bill yeah, <laughs> to show up. I think what we'll end up wanting to do is thinking about some way where we can kind of be hybrid. You can always reserve a certain number of VMs available, yeah. but if you want to spill over into de- uh, dynamic, we can probably play both those games. So that's basically yeah. we'll investigate into. So, I mean, for anything that I'm going to build, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I, I love the idea of dynamic. I mean, I'm, if I'm not working at a company that, that wants to exactly know the dollar amount each time, I mean, I'm not, I'm going to have a good time in dynamic, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's, okay. I mean, that's where our, our focus is, right? Dedicated is basically done. We're not doing any additional yeah. work for dedicated okay. right now. It was, it was free. Okay. Yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I was understanding that properly. No, our, our focus is entirely on like the serverless dynamic experience. 100%. Okay. So what about securing these? So I, I did go out there and I created one and it was just like a, it, it was like a hello world where it would just like give like a simple like echo response. Mm-hmm. But um, is there, is there some way I can secure it or do I have to put something in a front end on it? How does that work? Sure. So there's a couple of options you have here. Um, so the simplest, you know, kind of function app inclusive way of doing this is if you're doing service to service based authentication, you can use webhook auth, in which case one service just uses the API key to call the other service. Okay. If you're having a user call directly to the function, we'd recommend that you look into using um, what we call easy auth internally. I think it's called authentication and authorization, the feature inside the portal. And you can actually put like Facebook or Twitter or AED authentication in front of your function. So basically, if you have like an Angular app and you want to extend this with another API, you can actually use that same identity provider using this authentication provider. Okay, really cool. And then Um, I could also use like API management, right? Yeah, so that's that's kind of where I got onto the next step. So API management is actually right there. And uh, (laughs) uh, they're all about, um, you know, being able to basically manage your APIs across your application. So one really cool thing is if you have like, an existing API application. Like I wrote this with Web API or Express, but let's say I use like Web API 2 or, you know, I'm still using like Express 2 for Node. I don't want to upgrade those things. I don't want to even want to add new code to this code base. Like it's just on its last legs. We just need to maintain it over the long term. But you need to add an API to it. Well, what you can actually do is with APIM in front of that API app, you can also extend that with functions. So you can add functions to extend the REST you know, API surface area. And APIM will actually manage the routing to the right function behind ah, the scenes. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So you, you have like your, 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 well, we'll call it legacy. Legacy. It might be, might be mean in some cases, but we have our legacy and then we have our Azure functions. To the user, they just see it all as one giant, awesome API. Behind the scenes, we have our legacy code base and our... Our new code base. Yep, and you can use okay. dynamic, and then you, once again, you're, you're still able to just kind of ignore that API, right? If you just have something which needs to stay in kind of cold storage mode, it's the perfect way to extend that gently. Okay, that's pretty cool. And then, you know, what what are the common use cases that you've seen so far? I, I know this has only been out like a few weeks now, but mm-hmm. have you, you know, you said you've talked to, to customers and partners. What are the common use, use cases that you're seeing or hearing about? So, like, I think that the most consistent use case that I've seen is the timer. Like, everyone needs time jobs and, you know, mm-hmm. out there in the cloud. So that's the that's probably the most consistent use case I've seen. But I've seen a lot of cool things done with HTTP. People have build, been building, you know, full REST endpoints, building REST APIs for their otherwise static sites, like you were talking about before. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a lot of webhooks, so people connecting this in with Slack and Stripe and other services like that one. Um and then just recently, I think we saw peop- someone was running 5 million executions in a very short period of time using Event Hub. So like do- using this to do very high throughput um, event processing with IoT Hub. And so that's, okay. that's that's a new emerging one. I think IoT will probably be the one that we'll see grow the most. There's just so many events that happen in IoT. Um, but HTTP and timer is probably the most 
accessible. That's one that we'll see more customers trying, and we'll probably see a fewer number of customers doing a high throughput for the IoT ones. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stream processing where where stream analytics, stream analytics is really easy and it keeps getting more and more powerful. But if you really want to do like custom stream logic for, for IoT scenarios, I could see this being a great fit because you could sort of, you know, run code that analyzes the data that's coming in there, state management, stuff like that, kind of like an almost like an actor model or it could be potentially paired with that, but then also sort of aggregating those things. And, you know, if you have multiple devices that are doing something, they could call another function and you can chain these things. And I've, I've looked at this problem before and it always came down to like, okay, how the heck do we scale this thing infinitely Mm -hmm. without, you know, like we have to keep firing up more machines and how do we solve this problem? So that's why I'm super excited about, like, I just hand you the function and you just dynamically handle it for me. That's why I'm excited about the dynamic side of things. Yeah, I mean, when, so go ahead, Carl. I was going to ask another question. You can. I was just to say when we uh, when we first showed this to the IoT team, they basically had that same response. It's like, oh my god. Yeah. You know, so they, they were using. Web- <laughs> this is what we've been waiting for. Yeah, they were using web jobs before, but even with web jobs, wow. you have to still manage the scale in scale out problem. Yep. Taking yeah. that problem of managing the compute entirely away from users is a huge just kind of burden off their shoulders. Yeah. So is that scale factor really the? maybe the decision factor that I should look at instead of doing my own web jobs, web API solution. Um, Because, you know, I think a lot of times, like if I'm going to write this, I'm not going to just write one or two off things. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to have essentially an API's worth when I'm doing something at least professionally or for a larger project. So is, is that really the biggest thing just so I can remove that scale factor or, you know, is there other reasons to use this in those scenarios? I mean, I think that there's there's kind of two kind of cases there, right? There's one case where I have something which is going to run very infrequently, and I don't want to pay for a full VM to run that on. And I have another use case where I don't know what the scale pattern will be. You know, build tickets will be sold, and the thing will just skyrocket, and I wasn't prepared, right? <laughs> Theoretically, they run this function. <laughs> that hits close to home, man. That had that been, been okay. <laughs> but, you know, that's 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 kind of the examples that we're looking for, where you're either running in very low throughput, where it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. to actually provision a full VM for the thing, or you're running on a very highly varying system, and you it's, it's just too costly to actually handle the scale in, scale out yourself. Yep. You know, um, our... our our, our eyes are really big right now. We really want to tackle the server, the high-scale, hyperscale problem. So that's definitely where we're going to drive towards. You know, the adoption blockers that you'll see in the meantime there are going to be uh, just the fact that it's a new framework, essentially, right? This isn't, you know, ASP.NET, which is really well-trodden with lots of tooling and lots of expertise out there. It's a pretty much a new framework. So it's going to take time for us to get the right tooling, get the right community support, all that kind of stuff to come up with these good architecture patterns for building a full REST API with functions. We're going to see early adopters doing this. But if you're trying to have a 100 API site inside of functions, you'd probably struggle just because you're having to write each one, you know, by itself without, you know, a whole lot of tooling to help you out. So, yeah, and then you have to figure out how to yeah, get them to talk to each other. and Yeah, so one, once you've reached about like a dozen functions, we see you know some friction there. So for you know, smaller scale things, um, it's, it's definitely approachable now. For the bigger scale things, I'm not telling you not to do it. I'm telling you to do it and yell at me <laughs> when you start running into friction because we, we want to be there, right? Our, our sights yeah. are set very high in this one. We think this is going to be really, really cool, but we know that's going to take us, you know, we're realistic. It's going to take us some time to um, kind of reach that same level of maturity as a lot of other projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because ultimately, I mean, I'd love to, you know, because a lot of people talk about this whole like serverless architecture, and I'd love to get to that point where you... 
um, you know, you, you do have to think a little bit differently um, in how you design things. It's almost sort of like a microservices slash um, serverless. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it fits with with a couple uh, different scenarios. But yeah, it'd be nice to for me to just like fire up a, a new repo in GitHub and, and start you know, with just a little bit of a change in my thinking, be able to define my application and then hand it over to you. And and you see it as a whole bunch of different pieces. And each of those pieces has to be, you know, dynamically handled. And then, you know, we just, we all win in that case. Yeah. And and there's frameworks out there that are trying to look into this. There's, um, there's a framework called go serverless and, you know, Mm -hmm. they've done this for Lambda essentially, where they essentially let you write against their framework and then they convert that over to functions essentially that they can then deploy for you. I was looking at that. And they also handle the API gateway stuff which is, you know, a little bit difficult. Um, yeah. You know, we're, we're hoping that we can kind of develop those same relationships and essentially allow people to, you know, write against those frameworks and also manage to deploy out to, to, to functions. And, and those are the kinds of things that we'll need in order to mature up as a framework is being able to have other tooling which can help abstract away some of the problems that come with moving from, I'm normally writing just this big set of code that is running mm-hmm. as one giant service to a bunch of essentially nano services is what we've got here with the functions. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to call it. So, um, if I have an existing web API, like, have you seen anybody like convert that over? I mean, is that insanity? Should I not be thinking that way? I mean, for like, like I said, if you are working with an application where you're you're talking about, you know, I say I said a dozen, I'll say less than two dozen uh, APIs, you're, you're you'll be you'll be fine. There's there's not like the drill running. You'll have to change your thinking and all that kind of stuff. It's not the same tooling, those kinds of things. But you can totally make it happen. You can totally make it so that you're never having to manage scale again. You can handle really, really high loads. Um, I actually have an exponential scale tester, and I was handling like 2 to the 14th, you know, uh, requests going through at one point. It was pretty crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, some really, really interesting things you can do with it. But like I said, the, the problem that you'll have is actually maintaining that application code base without the tooling. Those are going to be the things that you'll struggle with. Yeah, okay. So what is the pricing on this, or what is the pricing once it goes GA, if you know that? Sure, right? I mean, it's it's free right now because we're basically trying to get more customer input on the I pricing. Can afford that. <laughs> so it's, 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 <laughs> it's very affordable right now. Um, when we actually announce the pricing, I mean, we're generally shooting to kind of looking at what the industry is doing, and we'll be pretty much price competitive with that. It's it's. Okay. It's incredibly like the the latest set of numbers that I saw them run by. I'm I'm not going to say the specific numbers so I don't get in trouble by them. But the latest set of numbers I saw, I was like, I can run that much for that little. It's it's really insane. Yeah. So you had mentioned earlier too some some phrase I had never heard before, and I didn't take a note of it, but it was so like gigabits. I don't know what was it. You, uh, there was some measure for free. Yes, it's gigabit seconds. Essentially, what you're doing gigabit there. Gigabit seconds. Okay. It's, it's it's a combination of how much memory you've reserved times how much CPU seconds that you're using. So essentially, okay. if you have reserved 128 megabytes of compute space and you run that for 30 seconds, you've consumed 3.75 gigabit seconds because it's one eighth okay. of gigabyte times 30 seconds. Okay. And how many of those do I get for free? 400,000, which is 37 <laughs> over 37 days, something like that, of like execution after execution after execution in the 128 megabyte space. Okay. And then you mentioned, you mentioned the memory space. Is that something I have to define ahead of time? How does that, how does that work? Yeah, there's a slider in the, in the, in the menu. So essentially okay. we, you'll just run out of memory. So if you are doing image processing, you probably want to scale that all the way up to the other, to the high end and then go and look okay. at your history to see how much memory you're using and scale that back down. For most HTTP functions we see, they are, you know, under 128. So you're probably safe. 
Okay. But if I, if I crank that the whole way up, I'm basically going to burn through those gigabit seconds. Yes, you know, much quicker. if I'm just doing like hello world, you know, echo responses, I'm going to use basically a lot of those each time. Yeah. And that's, and that's pretty much the, uh, the last battlefield for us in order to actually okay. <laughs> abstract away the entire underlying server piece. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's figuring out the user experience for being able to see how much memory you need and then only charging you for that much memory. It's, that is a problem that we still have yet to tackle. Yeah, because the memory usage too can be sort of dynamic. Exactly. I can only you got to calculate sort of the area. You're going to end up, you know, using more CPU power just to calculate the actual requirements than to actually run the workload. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, sort of speaking about that, any roadmap items you can talk about? I know in each of these, you were like, "Oh, we're we're looking at this and thinking about this." I don't know if there's anything sort of concrete you can share or any thoughts. Yeah, I mean, we're we're pretty much open besides the billing stuff because that involves the business folks. But in terms of features, yeah. we're pretty much open. I need to actually get this published on GitHub, but I've been giving presentations. After presentation about it, um, we're working on tooling. We're working on making it so you can write your own extensions. So you can bring your own inputs and outputs into the into functions. Oh, and so essentially, you can like we're the current thing that uh, the engineers are tossing around right now is actually just pointing at a NuGet package, and we'll import that NuGet package for you. And basically, that NuGet package is your extension. So I wrote a web jobs wow. extension like you know probably two months ago. I had never written one before, and I'm not a .NET developer. I'm mostly a Node guy. And it only took me six hours. So, you know, mm -hmm. six hours to get a Slack extension working was was pretty quick. Yeah. So we're hoping that that model will work out. We're still working through the details, but that's essentially our roadmap items is focusing on GA, getting tooling, um, getting that going. We also have another cool thing coming out uh, called, they're like LogiCap connectors or API Hub connectors. I'm not sure if we've gotten the branding on that right yet, but they're essentially connectors out to SaaS services. So you'll be able to trigger off of new tweets, new Dropbox items, et cetera. So it'll be, oh. you'll be able to actually trigger off of any data that you want out there. So it's it'll really, that should, magnif that should multiply the number of triggers that we actually have available for people by like two or threefold. No, that's a that's an awesome point because you know we haven't talked about logic apps on the on the podcast yet, but you're right. You have these yeah external input triggers like a new tweet. We actually um, I have one of those set up that um, whenever there's a tweet about the MS Dev Show and it's not perfect, it's basically a Twitter search. It puts it into uh, our Slack channel mm -hmm. so we can actually see what uh, what people are tweeting about w with the show. Um, so yeah, that'd be, that'd be cool to, to pass it through that because we actually get some false positives because if it says like MS dev show, like anywhere in there, like for a while we were getting like these office ones and, mm -hmm. um, just random <laughs> other languages as well. Sometimes they'll trigger it. So I'd love to be able to, yeah, run it through, um, you know, basically call into, a um, uh, a function, uh, you know, an Azure function yep. that would, that would maybe apply like another rule to it and then output it from there. That would be, oh man, that that's, that, that's just awesome. And you can, I mean, the, all these pieces are starting to come together and you can do that today. If, if you actually go to lot, because you can still use logic apps to do this stuff. Yeah. Cause you can make, make an HTTP call, right? Exactly. So with logic apps, yeah. you can go to logic apps today and logic apps actually has a um, functions trigger type in it now. So if you go, oh, to, it does. if you go to logic apps and you like click on the select connectors and uh, the same way that you choose an API app, you now have fun the choice to choose a function today. And so you can write this today, you know, have a Twitter um, trigger, have a function do some small transformation or filtering, and then pipe that out to Slack using their Slack connector. Oh, that's so cool. So we've seen a lot of those things as well. And I'm going to be giving a yeah. talk at Integrate 2016 here next month where I'll be doing lots of demos of that. 
Okay. This is so exciting. This is, this is, I've, I've been waiting for a long time for this. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, right now it's pretty much just, you know, extending logic cap scenarios and we're basically kind of re-energizing a lot of the scenarios that web jobs did, but we're, we have a lot of really cool ideas for the future that we'll be getting, getting feedback on, like being able to basically just being able to program the internet, being able to write code against any event that could happen anywhere on the internet, anywhere in the cloud. Um, and this is really just a new way of writing uh, code and making applications in a very loose, mm-hmm. lightly coupled way. Yeah, web jobs are cool, but I mean, just to be honest, like in in retrospect, like I was never that excited about them because I, it just wasn't the same experience. The fact the fact is, for Azure Functions, I was able to go out there, you know, it said I created a new one, and then I said, "Here's my code." I mean, I just wrote it in the browser mm-hmm. for mine. And that was it. I actually sent out the URL then to some people and I said, Hey, call my Azure function. And I could actually see too in the logs, like that it was being called. Yeah. Like that was it. Yeah. And that, that was profound for me. I mean, Web jobs, you know, you got it. There's just some work you have to do. And they're, I mean, they have their, they have their place, but I, this is just awesome. It's just so easy to see why it's so cool. And that's basically how this whole thing got started. I took over web jobs almost this time last year. Uh, I was working on the mobile team before that. And this web jobs project kind of needed a, a new, new owner and I'm a node dev and this is a .NET product. And I'm like, why can't I write node against this thing? And so we just kind of started playing around with writing node inside of this framework. And then at the same time, we had the extensions model come around and uh, we had this you know, notion that we wanted to build something which could do serverless. And all these pieces kind of came together and it just kind of felt really natural in the end to just have this flow out. So it was a journey that took like you know, nine months or so, but the really in the last three months before build, that's when it all kind of really came together. We went from having like three or four people working on this to having like 30 people work on this. So mm-hmm. we've got a nice big team that's all really energized to make this stuff successful. Cool. Anything else you wanted to mention? Um, I mean, you know, I guess I could plug, if you go to functions to azure.com, uh, that is the easiest way to get started with functions. You'll, if you have an Azure account set up already, uh, it'll go in there and create a function app for you. It takes, I think, 30 seconds when I tried it this morning. Um, and then you're right there. You've got this app provisioned, ready to start writing functions against it. It's very easy. Um, and then you can follow me, you know, at Crandy Codes on Twitter if you want to see latest updates. I tweeted the F Sharp thing. We added Intel Sentence support. So you can kind of watch the updates come along from there. And we also have a blog post you can follow to get the updates. But tweets are kind of real time. As I see the devs pushing out the changes, I go and send a tweet, hey, this feature's live now. So. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, okay, Carl, should we move on to the dev tip? Okay, sure. what do you got? So this is a really, really cool Visual Studio 2015 extension. It's written uh, by Mads Christensen, so we know that he's always pumping these out. Yeah. Uh, so what this is, it's called Learn the Shortcut. So if you do something in Visual Studio that's not with a keyboard com- shortcut, it'll display it in the bottom what the keyboard shortcut is. If you hover over it, you'll see a little tooltip that'll pop out saying what it was. Like if you did like went to the edit menu and then went to find, it'll show you you went edit.find. It'll show you that you could have just hit control F and on top of that, it also outputs this to the output window. So if you don't catch it in the bottom, you'll also see it in your output window. Oh, that is so cool. It's amazing. And if you actually do a a shortcut, so if you hit control F, it won't show you that. So it'll only show it to you when you're not using it. So this is like, you know, whenever I'm sitting next to like a non-techie and they're, you know, like I'm sitting next to my dad and, and, uh, 
you know, I'm like, oh, go, you know, go to this site. And of course he goes up to the address bar. He types in like google.com and then he types in like the search, you know, he doesn't always do this. Hopefully he doesn't listen to this episode, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) I have seen him do this though. And I've seen people do this. Then I'll type like HTTP and it'll like put out the whole thing. You know, like msdevshow.com, he searches for it, clicks on the first result, you know, and I'm sitting there like, just just, you know, like type the address up there or type the search thing or whatever, you know? So basically the shortcut is me, <laughs> but, but for the shortcuts in, uh, in visual studio, which is what I need. I need the smarter person yelling at me saying like, you should learn the shortcut so that you can save time next time. Well, and sometimes you don't even know what they are because oh, I mean, in a, I don't have time in, in a minute, in a menu, they show it to you. So it's a little bit yeah. more obvious, but sometimes you're using it through a different tool or on the toolbar or something like that. It doesn't always show it to you. So this is a really cool way just to make that visible and kind of just, you know, a way to teach yourself how to do yeah. that. Okay, cool. Okay. So we play a game on the show. I guess you did listen to at least one episode. So, uh, you're familiar with this. Oh, actually, no, we didn't play this on the last episode. We didn't. Did we do it on yeah, the old one? I am. Uh, I'm out no, of the loop here. No clue. You got me. Okay. So I need you to pick a number between one and four inclusive. Three. Three. Okay. This is, we haven't done this one. So this is awesome. This is a kid's game. <laughs> Would you rather spend the rest of your life in a submarine or in a spaceship? Uh, spaceship. Yeah, I know. This is. <laughs> I, so Duh. I was originally an aerospace engineer in, in college and it was all about like maybe potentially being an astronaut at first. I quickly realized how idealistic that was and switched over to computer science. But, you know, <laughs> I would definitely take the spaceship, especially looking at like what SpaceX just did. Like that future is like open. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I recently uh, went on vacation to Florida and we visited uh, the Cape Canaveral grounds and they have a, a video kind of showing like what the future of space mm-hmm. is. And in there, it said like, if you're a kid between like five and 15, you're actually are eligible to be an astronaut in the next missions that could potentially go to wow. Mars. And the number of astronauts could, could go exponential based on the exponentially dropping costs of space travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have inflatable spaceships now too. I think that was something I saw. They, there's a new <laughs> really like the, you know we had the, we had the nice. um, blimps and we had all the zeppelins and stuff. We're going to do that all again in space because it's much cheaper to lift that lightweight material up there. And then they have like goo that'll fill in any holes that come from like you know <laughs> micro meteorites. Okay. But really cool idea because you could basically assemble these things and you can have backup spaceships yeah. with you inside of your main spaceship. Yeah, it's funny. There's like, there's, there, there's so many ideas now. Mm-hmm. It's just, we'll have to sort of experiment and see which one wins. I hope we have a new renaissance of, you know, kind of space travel coming around soon. I, I, it, it kind of feels like we are, I mean, with the whole like SpaceX and then you have, um, uh, what the heck is his name, uh, from Amazon, uh, Bezos, yep. you have him or Bezos, however you pronounce it, you know, you have like him doing his, his whole space thing. I mean, it, it's, it's almost like a, a, another mini space race. You have a space race of privatization and, uh, you know, we just had that, um, uh, spaceship. I don't, I don't know what do you call it? Rocket or whatever. It landed on the, the barge. It's just yeah. so cool. And, and I, I listened to Elon Musk's book and, uh, it's, it's just, it's really neat. The, the stuff that they're doing because, you know, like the, the computer, you know, they talked about how that thing, they, they were going to order one that's like all hardened. And I want to say it was, I don't know if it was 50,000 or $150,000 for this computer. Mm-hmm. It's just a terrible computer. I mean, it's, it's like as bad as like this Mac mini here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, 
uh, Elon is just like, that's just unacceptable. And they ended up like building their own and, uh, you know, they did it for, I want to say like 1500 bucks or something. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, this is good enough. Throw this in there. This is what we're using. Uh, maybe throw a second one in there for redundancy. I mean, they just, they're questioning the old way of doing everything. I mean, every single screw that NASA ever purchased was, you know, $50,000. So, um, it's just, it's neat to, to see this going on. Okay. Carl, what number do you want? I'll take number Number one. one. (laughs) Wow. Would you rather pick a carpet clean with tweezers instead of vacuuming? I don't even know how that's possible or trim the lawn with nail clippers instead of mowing. I think you might've had this one before. I remember the nail clippers. Uh, I I would rather do the lawn. I think that's what you picked last time too. (laughs) 100%. At least you're consistent. I was going to start crossing these off, but I don't have a permanent marker here. I'm going to get one and start doing that. Uh, Okay. So um, you did, uh, you did mention earlier your Twitter handle. Why don't you um, mention that again? So people know where to find you. Sure. It's uh, at Crandy codes. So C R A N D Y codes. Okay. That sounds awesome. And then in our show notes, we'll have link to uh, links to the you know various pages for, for Azure functions. Otherwise, if you just search for Azure functions, that stuff shows up. Uh, so that's super exciting. Uh, Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. You can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Chris, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. Cause like I said, I'm super excited about this. I've just gotten started. Uh, I think now as stuff comes up for the MS dev show or my blog, I'm going to start using Azure functions. I'm just super excited about this. So thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about this. It's great to hear. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. 